I'm Jeannie Allen, and this is Reality Check. Reality Check is produced by National Review and is one of more than a dozen podcasts offered on the National Review online website. If you'd like a free subscription to the podcast so that you never miss a program, simply sign up at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or tune in. Thanks for joining me today. This is Jeannie Allen, and this is Reality Check. I am delighted to have with me Matt Greenfield, who's an education entrepreneur and investor extraordinaire uh, and a partner at Rethink Education based in New York. Uh, But Matt works across the country and across the world, in fact, looking for really interesting innovations in uh, how to make education better, broader, and more impactful. Uh, Welcome, Matt. Thank you very much for having me. You know, Matt, I think it's really interesting because I've talked to a lot of folks on this show that are in the policy world, the political world, some who are, you know, educators, um, and the whole environment for investing in entrepreneurship um, in education is sometimes still a foreign concept to most people. I mean, we think about schools mm-hmm. and we think about institutions and colleges, but rarely in the world of public policy or listeners to this podcast do we actually really get to talk about what actually helps those things process and occur. What do you really do? <laughs> so I take money from a group of limited partners, which includes foundations, philanthropic individuals, um, and some corporations that have an interest in education, whether they are currently in the education business or whether they might like to get into it at some point. And then I invest it with the best most passionate, most talented entrepreneurs whom I can find and help them get their companies off the ground and scaled, helping, in some cases, many millions of people each. Which is amazing. We were talking about Rethink Education, your firm, and you mentioned that you actually wrote the business plan for Rethink Autism. Tell me about that. How did that happen? A series of lucky accidents like most of my career. So... I met an autism specialist who was focused on a problem. And I, I, as, an, as an investor, I like to start with problems, which um, helps me avoid – I make tons of mistakes. But um, one mistake that I try to avoid making is I, I try not to invest in companies that aren't solving a real problem, which is actually one of the biggest killers of venture-backed companies. And in this case, um, an autism specialist whom I was introduced to by my wife was focused on the problem that there were not enough people – trained to deliver behavioral therapy to autistic children. More and more autistic children, not enough um, people delivering therapy to them. If you live in the wrong place, you might be two or three hours drive from the nearest one, which means you're not going to get 20 to 40 hours a week, which is what the research tells you that you need to have a fighting chance of a decent life. Really? And so her idea was to go to people who are not holders of degrees in psychology, teachers, parents, paraprofessionals, grandparents, babysitters even, and to equip them to do some of the work of behavioral therapy for autistic kids. And it turns out it's the same for kids with other special needs and even for adult stroke victims. The underlying cognitive science is still the same. And so she was trying to sell it to hospitals for some reason, and the product was a big box of paper. And I said, I think this should be a software product. And by the way, I was still working as an English professor at the time. I was not in my current job. 
And she said, well, how would that work? And so I wrote a business plan with her, and then we gave it to a company that was eventually bought by Rupert Murdoch called Wireless Generation, which mm-hmm. I had previously invested in. And annoyingly, they wouldn't do anything with it. So then I went looking for an entrepreneur, and my uh, my source for potential entrepreneurs was mostly the parents of my children's friends. And I found to Israeli entrepreneurs who were looking for something new to do, and they were the first ones who really got it and got passionate about it. The CEO had been volunteering um, in the pediatric ward of a hospital for a long time. Wow. And I remember after we um, got the company off the ground, I visited their offices, and he was wrestling with an autistic kid in the corner, um, you know, in an affectionate way. Mm-hmm. It's just a different kind of DNA for a company. Right. And so... What the company does is it it gives you step-by-step instructions for 1,200 modules worth of lessons, everything from how to make eye contact at the very beginning to um, what to do when you're getting on an airplane, what you're going to experience and what sort of challenges you might encounter and academic topics along the way. And that's for the teacher or the coach in the, ch- in the life of the autistic student or mm-hmm. child yeah. or adult. And then there are tools for recording the results of each exercise. Oh. And what's interesting there, and this is true for a lot of the best companies, is there's persuasive evidence that behavioral therapy, um, a particular species of behavioral therapy called um, applied behavioral analysis, works. But the studies are not very – not the best social science one has ever seen just because they involve relatively small numbers of kids, 48 kids in one study, 64 in another. And they rely to some extent on self-reporting and they're not um, extremely longitudinal. They don't last for all that many years, mm-hmm. many of them, because it's expensive to do something over a long period. So Rethink Autism, now known just as Rethink, is – collecting data on tens of thousands of kids with special needs. They're developing a whole new kind of data set and a whole new map, which is one of the happy byproducts of delivering the service. That's fantastic. Well, and we talk about education and schools and innovations a lot. Shouldn't that help really transform, not just for autistic kids and kids with special needs, as you said, shouldn't that transform the way we the way we think about education in general and schools? I mean, this whole notion of rethinking the way you work with someone who has a very serious um, need and, and a different and a special need, why couldn't we apply that to all kinds of institutions? Why are we still having this problem thinking we can create all sorts of innovations for people on the sidelines, right? But our traditional school system still has to have what it has. Well, the technology is not quite there to deliver on the true vision of personalized learning. Can I say a little bit about the Please vision do. and where we're headed? Yes, and what is personalized learning too? Because a lot of people use okay. that term and yeah. it's becoming it's becoming the new buzzword of the, of the day. <laughs> when I hear the words adoptive learning, uh, to paraphrase someone or other, I reach for my revolver um, <laughs> because I, I know that um, nine times out of ten, I'm about to hear a load of hooey. Um, yeah, so there's what I call shallow personalization, which is, Asking, does this student understand how to graph a linear equation? If not, why? Where did she get left behind? Where did the train pull out of the station without mm-hmm. her? Was it when they were learning about the x and the y axis? Was it when they were learning about negative numbers? 
you have to go back to wherever it was that she stopped understanding and give her the knowledge that she needs. But that's a trivial and shallow form of personalization. Ultimately, what we need to do when we personalize is to ask the question, who is this child? What is she passionate about? What does she want to do? What are the things that she is struggling with? And let's say that you have one child who is particularly passionate about sports. Let's say it's hockey. And another one who just loves music, jazz, let us say. So that's a hook. That's something that you can use to make education more interesting and compelling to that child. Even as early as kindergarten, even as early as preschool, you can ask, what does this child love to do? And I'm not saying that you have to decide at age four that a kid is going to be a fireman when he grows up. But you take whatever the current passion is and you start to construct hypotheses about what that child might do when she grows up. She wants to be a fireman? Okay. So we're going to give you some narratives about firemen. And when we get to fractions, it could easily seem like a boring torture inflicted on you by adults for inscrutable purposes of their own. It often does. But what if you actually needed to understand fractions in order to be a fireman? Right. Yes. Now it's relevant. Yeah. But what you've just described, which I think everyone who wants the best for students in our nation want, sounds so hard. How do you do that with millions of kids at the same time? Is the answer technology? Is it practice? Like I've spoke to Robert Pendicio, who is an expert in practice and curriculum instruction. What is it? How do you get there? It's partly a question of technology, right? You need technology that can deliver a personalized version of a course. Here are math problems involving music and concerts um, and promotion of musical events. Here are some math problems on the same topic that are about being a fireman. Right. And and, and what you're describing, which I love, is this back mapping, if you will. It's a probably an overused term in the policy world, but essentially you go, where's the career out here? Mm -hmm. Fireman, boat manufacturer, Mm -hmm. engineer. Here's the kinds of courses you need. Here's Here's the competencies you need. Here's the courses you need and that you can get that are in the right zone of development, let's Mm -hmm. say in K-12 and higher ed. By the way, I've talked before about why does 8th grade, 8th grade, why is 12th grade, 12th Mm -hmm. grade, and why do you need four years to get a BA? Maybe you can accelerate that depending on what you've done and what you've exposed those kids to. So, for example, the boat manufacturer that can't create boats anymore that efficiently, it sounds trivial, but it's not. turns out you need trigonometry mm-hmm. to be able to do the calculations to create whatever it is they need to make these amazing boats. But if you can't get that from your local school in that rural community, and those are the only jobs available to you, you're going to either move or you're going to import people from another country, which nobody really likes to talk about. So, so how do you create that continuum from learning, teaching and learning in schools to that career? Well, you need tools that can create personalized versions of the courses. It may not be an enormous number of versions. There may be a limited enough number of career aspirations Mm -hmm. among students so that you can create 30 different versions of a course. Or you may do it in a more automated way. But let's take the kid who's passionate about music. So an American history course at a higher level, wouldn't it be awesome 
If you could have a version of American history with supplemental readings on music, if the story of America, to give the Whiggish version, Mm -hmm. is a story of the extension of the rights of citizenship to new groups, to larger and larger percentages of the population, each of those extensions of the franchise is associated with a genre of music. That's so true. Whether it's spirituals and slavery or whether it's Stonewall and disco. So you can very easily construct a compelling American history course with music as a theme. Because that's your interest and that's your passion. Yes. And talk about turning people back on who have been turned off. You know, I used to think, though, Matt, uh, and if you are just uh, just connecting with Reality Check, I'm talking to Matt Greenfield of Rethink Education, an investment firm, but they really are rethinking education. We're having a conversation about that. Um, is it actually maybe investment firms not quite the right terminology, but that makes sense. Um, So think about all of these students who don't have that relevancy. I used to think the word relevant was like, why do we have to make education relevant? You never think it's relevant when you're having to do the multiplication. Just eat your broccoli, kids. Just go to school. Do what we tell you because it's important. But this really is a new world, a new generation of people, maybe the last 10 years especially, Hmm. where they have to see the purpose. Yeah. Absolutely. It's more imperative than it ever was. And so instead of saying, here's something you need to do so that you can get into a good college so that you can earn a good salary and fulfill the expectations of your parents, you have to say, here's why you're learning this. And there's no better way to do that than to say, you love music. Okay, here's one career, sound technician. That's one thing you could do that would keep you close to the music when you've grown up. And you need to learn algebra because you can't be a sound engineer without it. Here is your pathway towards being a sound engineer and the skills you need along the way. And the ultimate goal here is to get students to stop asking, how do I get this essentially meaningless credential that I need? How do I get an A? What do I need to do to make the teacher happy? What, do I, what subjects do I need to graduate? And instead have them asking, what's my goal? What am I passionate about? How do I use this institution to move me towards my goal? Right. How do I have that agency, that student agency to do that? Yeah. Can we do that in today's K-12 system? Totally. We can. Now, it it doesn't necessarily take any technology at all to begin thinking about students in this way. I was always astonished. I'm a former college English professor. Where were you? I taught while I was in graduate school Uh at Yale, Uh and then I taught at Bowdoin College, Uh and then the City University of New York's College of Staten Island and CUNY Graduate Center, and then I did a little teaching at Columbia after I left the full-time teaching job. But um, let me tell you a story about me as a teacher. So I was teaching uh, composition classes at the College of Staten Island, this CUNY campus, which is essentially open admissions, um, has some of the most talented students on the planet and also some students who are not fully prepared for college. And uh, it was revelatory. I learned so much from that institution and those kids. Um, I also got to teach uh, future teachers in a teacher prep program, and I taught current New York City school teachers um, Shakespeare in a master's class as well. But when I was teaching that composition class, there was often um, one person in the room with really bad, sullen, hostile body language, slumped (laughs) over, ignoring me, and expressing general contempt for the entire (laughs) class. Often a man... And very often it turned out that it was the car guy. 
The car guy. Yeah. So I would go around the class. The first thing I would do, and I think this is essential in every class and also at the beginning of every school experience, and I would ask them, what are you – what are you really interested in? And sometimes they would resist me because they didn't think that the answer was academically legitimate and I would have to pry and ask, so what were you passionate about when you were 10? What did you like to do then? So with the car guy, he sort of reluctantly answers, well, I, you know, I, I, like, I like driving. I, I have this car. I said, um, is, is there anything special about your car? Well, yeah, I, you know, I put $20,000 into, into modifying it. I've been working since I was 10 so that I could have the money to modify my car. And I would make my way around the room asking each student the same question, and I would take notes, and I would come back to the car guy. Uh, I loved finding the car guy. <laughs> and I would say, um, all right, um, your f- the, the first assignment for this class is going to be to write a personal narrative about that thing that you love to do. And some really special or even slightly crazy thing that you did related to music mm-hmm. or horses or motorcycles, or whatever it is that you're passionate about. So, uh, Mr. Car Guy, mm-hmm. uh, what, what are the two craziest things you ever did in a car? <laughs> and and um, he would start off a little stiff and halting, wondering what sort of trap he was falling into, but then he would get into it. The class would naturally be enthralled. It would be a hair-raising story right. involving, you know, 70 mile-an-hour chases or races uh, through the surface streets of Staten Island, New Jersey. And and then I would say, that's great. You're basically done with the first assignment. You just have to write that down. The rest of you, see if you can come up with something that's at least half that good. Oh, wow, fantastic. And that's a big change in his whole attitude towards school, right? It's a totally different relation. now he can tell a story, and he has to write it, and he's still using the skills he's there, or you're going to learn the skills he's there to learn, but you've made it contextualized and relevant. But it's not just about the stories. It's about the fact that he's not a dummy. Right. right? He's always been made to feel like a dummy right. because he doesn't like American history courses or uh, algebra courses as they are currently taught. But he knows how to repair engines, which I don't know how to do. Exactly. And so if the next assignment is write me an explanation of how you modified your car's engine. And use very simple words and be sure to explain every term you use because I don't know a thing about engines. I've tried, but I still don't. And then he's the expert and he can explain. And then next thing you know, he's writing a research paper on something that genuinely interests him. That's now, amazing. That's, so that's not just about technology. That's about respect for students, which I would say you know, the ed tech industry and ed tech innovators and even some of our beloved charter schools are not necessarily good at. Mm-hmm. In terms especially the, the, the ability to, to eke out what it is they are interested and passionate about and, again, meet them, meet mm-hmm. them where they are. Not dumb it down, but lift, do that exact thing, lift them up. Yes. And I want to say one other thing about innovation, which I think is important here. Um, so if you went to the um, superintendent of a school district and you – told the story I just told and said, you need to change your way of teaching so that everything is personalized, student-centered, and student-driven, um, self-paced, that superintendent would probably say, whoa, you know, we're still trying to adopt to the common core, <laughs> or we have this professional development initiative that we urgently need to do. Right, or name the 10 most recent fads, whatever we haven't yeah. gotten to. We, we can only do one of these things at a time. But – if you instead said something like, um, so um, 
your teachers are mostly using uh, Gmail at home. How would you like to use G Suite for education for free at school? You say, okay. Or maybe it's the new uh, Microsoft cloud-based suite, mm-hmm. whichever it is. You say, okay. And you start using it. And the kids who are digital natives rapidly discover that they can collaborate on the cloud-based word processing documents, spreadsheets, um, right. um, presentation software. And then you have a fact on the ground. You have a new project-based, student-centered, collaborative mm-hmm. learning model. Mm-hmm. And the teachers adjust, and the district adjusts, perhaps somewhat more slowly. For a while. But basically, a new pedagogical practice has been smuggled in inside the Trojan horse, right, of convenience, right, of using Gmail or of using the new Microsoft suite, whichever it is. And the technology has very painlessly ushered people in a direction that they weren't necessarily intending to go. Mm-hmm. That's the optimal case. That doesn't necessarily happen all the time. Mm-hmm. There's another um, at least equally frequent story about how the, the technology is well-intentioned, but it doesn't fit into the way that people do things. Right, exactly. So, so essentially, you know, this is interesting because I've heard people say this to me before too. Technology isn't necessarily about equipment. It's about tools and how you use things sometimes. Same thing with innovation, right? And so – but getting superintendents, school leaders, others to do that is still a challenge because they have so much. And yeah. so opening opening up the pathway, showing them, creating models, doing things differently, right, becomes so imperative. And making it really simple. So I'll say another thing about Mm -hmm. curricular materials. A a lot of the companies that I am most excited about are focused on the back office. Right. Budgeting, procurement, regulatory compliance for English language learners, regulatory compliance for special ed, truancy interventions. Really? Okay. Dropout prevention. All of those things are exceedingly important, and you can make a huge delta in the operations of a school district by fixing one of those. Oh, scheduling, ma- scheduling. constructing a master schedule. Right. That's another one. So Technologies to help schools and school districts manage all of those aspects, backroom, scheduling, yeah. dropout prevention tools, et cetera, yeah. right? You can't innovate. It turns out you can't. It turns out you can't really innovate in teaching unless you can innovate in scheduling. Right. Interesting. And, and, yeah. And so, um, so you do need those supports. But then, what is it that happens in the classroom? And there's a lot of boring educational content out there. And my test is: does it really delight and engage the students? And I'll talk about um, right. one company that I particularly love that I don't have a uh, any sort of personal stake in. Uh, Brain Pop. Brain Pop, yep. So they have a fantastic library of videos with characters like uh, uh, Moby the Robot, and um, and they have this playful banter and their their narratives to them. And my kids loved those videos and would voluntarily watch them for a long time. And so the end result of that was that. I had my daughter at age six explaining how a recessive gene worked to me. And my kids, maybe the next year, were playing 20 questions. And the same daughter successfully guessed the animal that my uh, older son was thinking about. And it was the archaea. Do you know what the archaea no, are? No, the archaea? Um, it's a they. Archaea is a plural? A-R-C-H-A-E-A. A-E-A. Uh, as in architecture or okay. ar- 
archaeological, the, or, the original, the older things. Um, they were thought for a long time just to be bacteria, but it turns out that they ha- are sufficiently different in their DNA and their biochemistry so that they've been assigned their own domain of life alongside of the bacteria and the eukaryotes. And so the average education, educated person does not know about no. the archaea. No. But my kids all do because they use brain pop. And they did it voluntarily and playfully. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. So that there, there aren't very many things like that out there. I can point to a few others that I'm not personally involved with mm-hmm. that I admire in that way. I think mystery science has some of that same quality. There's a nonprofit called the Mind Research Institute that has a, a wonderful product called ST Math. And mm-hmm. you can see the fraction part of it online for free. And basically, it explains fractions to you in a purely visual and intuitive way without ever using those alienating words, numerator and denominator. I still remember the first time I encountered those oh. words and how off-putting they were. Oh, and, you, and for which me. one is which? And yes, yeah. exactly. And I'm a very verbal person. Right. And so in the case of um, ST Math, you help the penguin across the ravine by building bridges with planks of different length. And you do it with two first with one plank, then with two planks of equal length, but then you have shorter planks, and how many of them do you need? And you master the concept of the numerator and the denominator before you ever hear the words. Right. There's another... Here, I mean, here's, by the way, before you go to the other one, I want you to remember that, but um, here's the other issue with numerator denominator, not that we don't want to be true to what things mean, right? My uncle is a big mathematician. He'd never want to change the words, but when you do have people of English, limited English language learning... Those are not those are not easy words. First of all, you can't even understand them. Yeah, that takes a sophisticated level. And so, if you can help them engage and get to numerator denominator with teaching them some other way or exposing them to a program through more of gaming, it's yeah. pretty good. I have a suggestion for all of you math standards makers and textbook writers out there: just call them the top number and the bottom number. <laughs> there you and go. That'll be clear. That's so much um, more clear. Yeah. No, that's no lie. That's really good. So there's another company out there, uh, a tiny uh, Scandinavia-based company uh, founded by a uh, Franco-African entrepreneur called Dragonbox. And they have software that teaches algebra, again, using a purely visual methodology. So you have to cancel things out of the equation by dragging the right boxes to the right places. And so they have nine-year-olds learning algebra. And nobody – I don't know what to do with the, that kind of knowledge in the context of formal education, but it's pretty darn cool. That's and pretty we're, we're going to have to figure it out. And by the way – Well, we have to have a career pathway. So what they're actually saying, if you're really good at that and you like it, here are the careers you could open up. You could be a nurse practitioner or a nurse. You could be yeah. a builder, You whatever it is. That's that – that's that continuity that higher ed needs to now start presenting. I mean, I think it's time for higher ed to start, step up too, don't you think? Absolutely. Yeah. So on the other end of the process, after you have this personalized education that is tied to the children's passions, what you need is accurate information about the job market, um, a GPS. Mm-hmm. And there are, um, there are companies now that are starting to make this possible. Imagine that you are – a first-generation college student, and you are passionate about social justice and you want to major in sociology, but your parents are saying, are you crazy? Right. We're not paying all this money so that you can end up living in our basement. Right. You know, if you can't hack it in computer science, at least do business. Right. That's practical. So it would be nice to know what sort of jobs are available 
in, say, the Boston area for someone who's majoring in sociology. But wouldn't it be even better if the system could say, if you major in sociology and also take one course in accounting, here is the way your job options open up. If you add these two particular computer science classes, including one in R mm-hmm. and one in Python, mm-hmm. and you also add these two stats courses, you now qualify as an entry-level data scientist. Right. You make literally double the salary of the business major, and you can still major in sociology. Nobody has that today. Everyone is flying blind. What about burning glass technologies? I've met, I've talked and met with Matt Segelman. Do they are they approximating this? They they help companies create. Well, I'm not allowed to talk about companies within my portfolio. Okay, um, but they are in your portfolio. I'm glad to hear that. No, they're not. You can't, can't talk, talk about them. All I right. can't talk so about anyway, that. So anyway, there's the a burning glass, burning glass Technologies is a company out there. I've gotten to know that's fascinating because the way it actually connects the workforce needs with, with, with the skills that are needed. And, and I'm hoping that part of the work that I'm involved in helps connect that all the way back to schooling, but then also allows us to look at rural communities, for example, where we're lacking any of this connectivity between the school, the businesses available, the colleges, where we're so heavily remedially educating people, where we, we can't – people don't want to move these communities because all of that is kind of broken and yeah. there are gaps, as, as hard work as they're all doing. Um, that's an issue. Okay, so the so last couple of questions as we start wrapping up, Matt, and this is fascinating, and I love talking to someone who's not only extremely literate and um, has this amazing English background but understands innovation, understands education and investment. What is your prediction for where higher ed is going to go? Where would you like to see it go in the next couple of years? Um, how do we get people thinking differently? So um – there is a long-running debate about the value of the liberal arts um, in education and whether everything needs to become uh, career pathways training programs. And I agree that it's great if you have a six-month career pathways programs that can get someone to a $50,000 salary. They should do that first, and then they should get college credit for it, and then they should continue with their college education in totally. a more leisurely fashion depending on their means. But – I think that the data show that em- employers have never been more concerned about liberal arts skills than they are now. The most central and basic one being can they write clearly and eloquently? Employers really want that. Unfortunately, there isn't a single college in this country that I know of whose diploma guarantees that someone in fact knows how to write. So we need to reshape the institutions. Right. We obviously need software that helps teach people the rules of writing. Yes. And strategies for writing, and that software now is starting to exist. Some of it is very good, but it's not broadly enough used, especially in college. And there needs to be some sort of institutional commitment to measuring whether someone can really write. And there needs to be someone incented to keep at it until the student does know how to write. Right. If, if, if they take a two-semester composition sequence and they still don't know all the rules of grammar and punctuation, somebody needs to take responsibility for that. And get to it. And that does not happen today. And it used to be – that used to be the hallmark of liberal arts because that you were pressed to think about numerous different issues. Uh, you know, there was that famous uh, exchange, maybe not so famous exchange, uh, in one of the Republican debates about philosophers versus welders. 
personally offended by Senator Rubio. I am a political philosophy, politics major, political philosophy concentration. And I'd argue that being forced to write about something that was challenging and convey thoughts and make reference, you know, references to things made me a really good writer. Yeah. If, or if at least ta- gave me the tools. I wasn't always a really good writer. People always talk about welders when they talk about vocation, but uh, increasingly the repetitive and mechanical um, parts of the job are going to be automated. Everything mechanical and repetitive is going to be automated. Um, so they need the liberal arts degree or the liberal arts skills anyway to help them with the non-repetitive, unpredictable aspects of the Interpretation. Right? Yes. Uh, uh, understanding. Yeah. At the same time, as someone who went towards the very high end of the um, academic spectrum all the way through, mm-hmm. um, I realized later that I had been severely impoverished by not having more contact with the vocational and with actual things, right. objects. Right? right. In junior high, I did um, shop class and home economics yeah. class. I sewed a really lumpy, misshapen pillow. It would have been better <laughs> if I had done more of that. But also, if you look at that book, um, uh, The Checklist, a Manifesto, uh, there's a fantastic chapter in there on the job of the construction manager, uh, the way that you manage a project where if you change a single detail, the change ripples out through the plans of the plumbers, the electricians, the interior designers, and maybe even their architects themselves. So it's, it's a tremendous – and you have this nested series of priorities every day related to each of those disciplines. It's tremendously complicated and it's collaborative. I was never exposed to anything like that mm-hmm. in the course of my education. Right. In fact, there was really not much emphasis on collaboration. Right. I would have benefited from that. I, I recommend that everyone investigate the job of construction manager and expose their kids to it if they can. It's fantastic. Well, Matt Greenfield, there's a reason that uh, obviously you call your organization Rethink Education, and uh, it's been a delight to talk with you and Rethink Education. We're out of time. My guest today on Reality Check has been Matt Greenfield, Rethink Education. Thank you so much for joining us. We have to continue the discussion someday. Thank you for having me. Reality Check is a podcast produced by National Review and posted at nationalreview.com. If you like what you heard in this podcast, and I hope you did, you might want to subscribe for free and make sure you don't miss any future programs. You can subscribe at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in. And you can also find much more about education reform, opportunity, and innovation at the Center for Education Reform's website, edreform.com.